turn, please, to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Where we will be beginning a new letter here this morning. So we will start in verse or chapter 1 and begin with verse 1 and 2. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Hear with me the reading of God's Word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far as the reading of our word. Now having just concluded with the epistle of Jude, Paul's letter to the Philippians in some ways is in stark contrast to that. Jude, written by Jude, we recall, was a letter of judgment. Judgment spoken against those false teachers who had infiltrated the churches and denied Jesus Christ by word and by deed. And because of this, we said that it makes Jude a, a less popular book to preach from on Sunday mornings. Uh, which is why Jude is considered oftentimes a neglected New Testament book. It, preaching on Jude kind of puts a damper on the mood for people who come and want to go home feeling good about themselves. But Paul's letter here to the Philippians takes a much different tone. He writes to a church which does itself have problems, which we will see later. But essentially, this letter in its totality is an encouraging letter. Paul's writing because he's happy with the saints and of their continued partnership with him in the cause of the gospel. And next week we will see this as he says in verse 5, one of the reasons he even gives thanks for these saints continually to God in prayer is because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so this letter also is unlike in some ways Paul's letter to the Colossians, a letter which we looked at together not too long ago. And if you remember in Paul's letter to the Colossians, Paul was writing to a people which he never seen face to face. Remember, Epaphras was a minister in Colossae, and Epaphras came and visited Paul when he was in jail and informed him of the condition of the saints there. And that is the the purpose for which Paul wrote. But here in this letter... Paul is very familiar with the saints in Philippi. For Paul was a founding member of the church there. If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 16 and we will look at what's recorded here of Paul's missionary journey to Philippi. Acts chapter 16. And we'll begin looking at verse 11. Acts 16 verse 11. We read this. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Here we have chapter 16, verse 11, their arrival to Philippi. And then in chapter 16, we have three recorded instances, three specific opportunities in which Paul has to share the gospel. The first is with Lydia, verse 14. 
We have recorded Paul speaking with others about the Lord on the Sabbath day. And we have recorded here that it said that the, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what the Apostle Paul said. And in response to the reception of that word, her and her believing household were baptized. The second recorded encounter we have comes from verse 16, in which we have this girl with the spirit of divination following Paul around. And after a while of hearing, this man serves the Most High God. He proclaims the way of salvation. Day after day, it says, Paul finally turns and rebukes the spirit within this girl and calls it to come forth, and it does. Yet the result of this was that Paul and Silas are imprisoned. And yet, as they are in prison, they are given another opportunity to lay a foundation there in the church in Philippi. And so here we have recorded for us in verse 25 the third and final opportunity that Paul had to preach the gospel in Philippi with the Philippian jailer, starting in verse 25. And we're all familiar with this story, how this great earthquake hits the jail, breaks Paul free from his bonds, and the jailer sees this and he drops down before Paul and he says, how can I be saved? Seeing the power of God, this one true God who Paul has been preaching. And what is Paul's response? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so he goes on preaching the word to this man, this jailer and his household. And as a result, we see that they were baptized upon reception of the word. And so later we see that Paul has here first-hand knowledge and familiarity with the people whom he is writing to. As we will read later in chapter 2 of of uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, he says that he has already sent a co-laborer, Epaphroditus, to minister to the saints there. In verse 25 of chapter 2. In verse 28 of chapter 2, he says, I hope to send Epaphroditus once again now that he's recovered from his sickness. And so we see that Paul has a level of uh, rapport with the saints there. He has a foundation, a relationship already built up with them. And so we will see in this letter that Paul will show a, a level of care and comfort for these saints that he has labored on behalf of so much. And so he tells them in this letter to continue on in the faith. Keep pressing forward to that onward call, that upward call, so that my labor for you is not in vain. We will also see in this letter, one of the themes of this letter is that Paul exhorts the saints unto, unto unity. Paul wants the saints to be united. And we will see this in chapter 1, verse 27. As Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or whether I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Or later in chapter 2, verse 2, he will say, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. You see, unity, a major theme in this book. And the reason, though, for that unity, the reason why Paul strives for the saints to be united is because of Christ. Christ being the central theme of this letter. Even a, a cursory reading by the most ardent critic 
could see this, could understand this. As Paul says he was imprisoned for Christ. He says to live is Christ. He wants to depart and be with Christ. He calls on the saints to seek the interest of Christ, to glory in Christ, to have the righteousness of Christ, to receive the grace of Christ while they wait upon the return of Christ. It is Christ, Christ, Christ for Paul here in this letter. And why is it so? Well, because Paul says he is a servant of Christ. And he is writing to whom he says are saints in Christ. Verse 1. Language which highlights the saints' covenant relationship to God. Words like servant and saint which lead us then to our first point of the morning. Our first point being uh, God's covenant members or covenant people. Our first point. Whom Paul is addressing. Where We will look at verse 1. Paul is addressing covenant members, covenant people. And our second point then will be covenant privileges. As we look at verse 2 and we see what is it that Paul is asking for these saints to receive? What is this grace and peace from God our Father he asked for? And so the two points of this morning, covenant people, covenant privileges. So to begin to look at covenant people, we will look at how Paul introduces himself in verse 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul includes Timothy in his introduction because if you go back and look in Acts 16, Paul is with Timothy in his missionary journey. And so it's a comfort to the people to hear not only Paul saying this, but that Timothy echoes, Timothy buffers exactly what Paul is saying. So it's a comfort to those saints. But so we see here that Paul introduces himself as servant, or this word can be translated slave. But servant is used here to denote one who is not following after someone out of a forced submission. He is not doing something against his will. Because often, it's natural for us, when we hear the word slave, to think of someone who's doing something against their will. They're forced into labor. They're dealing with harsh treatment. And so servant here is used instead of slave to tell us that Paul is following after Christ voluntarily and willingly. We can all think of a time when we were young children and we were sitting at the dinner table and our, our parents told us, you're not leaving this table until you finish everything on that plate. For me, it was Brussels sprouts. For you guys, it might be something different. But we were forced to do something we didn't want to do. We did it kind of kicking and dragging our feet. Paul is here saying, this isn't what he is doing. This isn't the case with Paul. And in fact, the term servant or slave is a highly esteemed term for the Christian. A highly esteemed term. It's a highly dignified term for the Christian. For Christ Himself was called a servant. Right? In chapter 2 of verse 7, we will be getting into later on down the line that great Christological hymn of Christ. What is Christ called? He's said to have taken the form of a servant. That same word used there for Christ, servant, is the same word used here for us, servant. And so, what greater compliment for you and I then to be identified with Christ? To be identified as servant. He was servant. 
And so we who are called to imitate our Lord must likewise be servants. And so we should be proud to be servants. It's a good thing to be a servant. This world is all about independence. I think for myself. I do for myself. I need no one. I follow no one. This world sees it as intellectual laziness. They see it as a sign of weakness to follow after someone else. But of course, we should expect that from those with a natural mind. They're averse to spiritual things. They cannot understand them. But they do not know that they themselves are following after someone. They're enslaved to someone. We all serve a master. The question though is, who is your master? Who is your master? It is either the Lord or it is Satan. And if your master is Satan, then you are enslaved to sin. You cannot help but gratify your sinful desires to seek to gratify every indecent yearning you feel. And yet the irony of it is, we who voluntarily call ourselves slaves and servants, we who people will look down at as weak for being servants, It is you and I who are actually free. It is you and I who are actually those who are free. We are free from the bondage of sin. We are free from the tyranny and power of the devil. We are free from the sting of death. And we are free to uh, practice truth, to practice righteousness, to do the will of Him who owns us. We shouldn't shy away from the fact we are owned. We were bought with a purchase price, brothers and sisters. We were bought with a price. I ask, what did Satan, what did Satan, the devil, what did he ever sacrifice for his followers? Nothing. Because he cares nothing for them. Yet you and I, when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, we served Satan with such loyalty. Yet Satan was not loyal to us. We served Satan and loved him so well in the practicing of our sins, yet Satan never loved us. Yet God loves us so that He sent His Son that we might be reconciled to the Father. That we might have that relationship, that communion, that fellowship with Him. Christ loved us so that He took upon Himself the human flesh. He voluntarily gave Himself up, taking on the form of the servant for you and I so that we might partake of that gracious covenant. For we were once not His people. We were those who were afar off. Yet we have been brought near to Christ by the blood of Christ. We were once strangers to the covenants of promise, but have now been made His servants. A people of His own possessions who He has gathered together to serve our Master. And yet servant was a title which was designated for the Israelites in the Old Covenant. Leviticus 25, verse 55. The Lord says this, For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants who I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You see, but now servant is a term which describes God's new covenant people. And so Paul has been made a member of the new covenant through being made a servant. For a servant is one who has been purchased. And we have been purchased by the blood of the new covenant. And so, what is our response to be to this? Well, it is to glorify God. 
By serving Him more faithfully. This is our purpose. We served sin so easily and so faithfully because we loved it. So now as new creatures, new creation in Christ, we must grow in love of God so that we serve Him so easily. So that it's easy for us to serve Him. So that serving Him makes us glad, brings us delight and joy and satisfaction in knowing that in it God is exalted. For when our manner of life coincides with our profession of faith, people see this and God is glorified. God desires that we grow and continually draw near to Him as sons and daughters in faith. Yet we do not do this by our own means, but God has appointed means for us to draw near to Him. This is sitting under the means of grace, the preached Word, the sacraments, even spending our free time, not idly by, wasting away, but using our free time to read God's Word, to pray, to meditate, to fellowship with the saints. In these things we are growing in conformity to Christ. This is what Paul will say this very thing in verse 21 later in chapter 1. For to me, for me to live is Christ, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. You and I should be saying that same thing, brothers and sisters. As long as we live upon this earth, to live is for Christ's gain, as we are His servants. You and I are lived to serve our Master. And so we see why Paul opens up by designating himself to the recipients of this letter as a servant of Christ. He serves the one who purchased him with his blood, which inaugurated this new covenant. He imitates his master who himself came to be servant. And so there is no greater title to identify oneself with if you are a Christian. And so then Paul as servant, after identifying himself as this, tells us who it is that he is writing to. And he says that he's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi. Here it is, we see believers likewise being identified as God's covenant people. And so I ask, what is it to be a saint? Or a holy one, another way this word can be translated. What is it to be a saint or a holy one? Well, to use a uh, a kind of a, an example that we all would know from a Wisconsin example. If I said, uh, I'm a cheesehead, or I'm a, I'm a fan of the green and gold, what am I doing? I'm identifying myself with the Green Bay Packers. Well, to say that I'm a, a saint or a holy one is to identify ourselves with the covenant people of God. Right? Take, for example, Psalm 37, verse 28. David says this, For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake His saints. They are preserved forever. Or Psalm 148, verse 14. He, that is the Lord, has raised up a horn for His people, praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who draw near to Him. Praise the Lord. Or in the New Testament, what does Peter say in 1 Peter 2, verse 9? When he writes to the elect exiles, what does he call them? He calls them a holy nation. A term used to describe Israel as God's particular people has now been used to identify God's new covenant people. God's chosen people. Because to be holy was to be set apart for God's specific use. And so Israel in the old covenant was set apart for a particular use. 
They were set apart that the Messiah would come forth from them. But no longer is this the case. For now it is only those who are in Christ who are God's particular people. It is we who have been set apart for God's sacred use. This is why Paul writes all those saints in Christ. He qualifies what he means by saints because later in chapter 3 we'll read that there are Jewish teachers who are trying to get the saints to follow after the rites of circumcision. And so upon reading this letter they may say, oh, well Paul is speaking to me. I'm a saint. I'm a holy one. I'm a member of God's covenant community. But no, Paul makes it clear the holy ones are only those who have been united to Christ by faith. As in verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ. We who are in Christ are the true circumcision. Another term applied to the church which was once designated for Israel, God's old covenant people. But what does Paul say? That circumcision is a matter of the heart. Circumcision is a matter of the regeneration by the Spirit, giving us a new heart. Paul says this in Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Circumcision through regeneration. You see, the church has inherited the title of God's covenant people. It is in the new covenant that the heart of stone has been taken out. The heart of flesh has been given to us. It is in the new covenant that God's holy law has been written on our hearts. It is those who Paul writes to. And so, it is those whom this letter is beneficial to. Covenant members. For what does the author of Hebrews say? In those members in the covenant of grace will all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. And so we are those who are set apart, created holy, anew in Christ. Through faith we have been united to Christ. This is how we become holy ones. We are holy ones because Christ, our Savior, is holy and so we are holy in Him. And so to be holy ones, though, then implies that we live as holy ones. It begs the question, how then do we live as holy ones? What have we been set apart for? Well, Paul describes several ways in this letter to the Philippians. And as we move along in our study, we will see that we have been made saints in order that we may advance the gospel. We've been made saints in order to advance the gospel. We see this already in verse 5. Paul thanks the saints for their partnership in the gospel. That's one of our purposes as saints. It's one of the reasons why we gather together. Yet not only is the gospel to be preached here, but each and every one of us are called to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. And so I ask, brothers and sisters, are you prepared? If someone came up to you today and said, what is it that you believe? Why do you believe it? Who is it that you believe in? Could you answer? Would you be sure that your answer is correct? 
You ought to be, brothers and sisters. Because this was one reason that we have been made saints. To not just speak Christ's name in church to believers, which is rather easy, but to speak Christ's name outside to unbelievers. Perhaps that means when we are gathered amongst our extended family. Perhaps that means the someone we run into at the bookstore. Perhaps that means an opportunity which we are given at work. But this is what we are called for, brothers and sisters. Also, we as saints are to love God and love one another, Paul says. In verse 9 he says of chapter 1, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As saints, our love is to grow more and more for not only our Lord, but for one another. And how does Paul say that we do this? By growth in knowledge. That we learn more about God and we learn more about ourselves. And the more we learn about ourselves and who we are, and we learn about God and what He has done, our love abounds for Him. And our love abounds for those who are His image bearers. Yet also, Paul says in this verse that we are to approve what is excellent. This word approve means we are to distinguish something based on testing it. We are to distinguish something based on testing it. Is this good or is this bad? If it's good, I do it. If it's bad, I cast it off. Think about, we could take the example from a ring of the law. right? The not bearing false witness. Not lying. So if we're in a group of people who are lying and bearing false witness about someone and we know it's a lie, we don't participate in it. We distinguish good from evil and we do that which is good and we flee that which is evil. And so, does this characterize your behavior, brothers and sisters? Or are you still following after certain sin. You ought not. All of us have been Christians long enough to be able to approve, to distinguish, to test, to discern that which is good and that which is evil. We are not to pollute that which God has made holy. And so ultimately, though we have been made holy ones, in order to praise God and to glorify His name, this means that you and I have been set apart to worship God. Worship is a saintly activity. Worship is a saintly activity. It's what holy ones do, what we have been separated for. Think of Aaron and his sons as they were consecrated as priests, washed with water, anointed with oil, sprinkled with blood for purification, that they may be separate from others, tasked with a specific duty to offer sacrifice on behalf of Israel as their sacrifice to the Lord. Not to profane themselves. Brothers and sisters, we have been purified. We have been consecrated by the blood of Christ, given the Holy Spirit, so that we might offer spiritual sacrifice to our Lord through prayer, through the singing of songs. Many people nowadays have a a wrong view of worship. They gear worship towards evangelism and unbelievers. This is a wrong view. Right? And so they model all of their worship after this. 
They build the coffee shops. They have the, the strobe lights, the projection screens. All with evangelism of the lost in view. But as we've seen, worship is something holy ones have been consecrated for. And so evangelism, yes, does happen in church. It's a byproduct of the Word being preached, but that is not the goal in worship. The goal in worship is to glorify God and to build up the saints. You and I who have been set apart for the very purpose of worship. Unbelievers cannot properly nor rightly worship God. And so their worship is not going to build them up. And so we ask, why are we able to do this? Why are we able to love God and one another? Why are we able to worship God properly? Why are we able to proclaim the Gospel continually? Well, because what's our second point? First point is because we are God's covenant people. And so the second point is because we receive God's covenant privileges or God's covenant blessings. And Paul names two here in verse 2. He names grace and he names peace. Grace is that unmerited favor of God we receive in the gift of salvation. Grace we do not deserve, but grace is something we need in order that we may live. Think back to Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sinned against God, what is it that they lost? Adam and Eve in the garden, when they sinned against God, what is it that they lost? They lost God's favor. They lost God's favor. God, in His own initiative, put Adam and Eve in the garden had sweet fellowship and communion with them. Think of all the great privileges they had of that relationship. But when they sinned against God, they lost favor with God. They were cast out of the garden, cast out of His presence, no longer to have that fellowship anymore. And you and I enter this world being in Adam, fallen creatures, having no favor with God, yet He being rich in grace, and mercy, as we are in Christ, that second Adam have received that unmerited favor. Favor we did not earn, nor favor that we do not deserve, so that we may have fellowship with God. That we are enabled to speak to God and know that He responds to us. To be able to walk in the rule of faith, to obey God's law, we need grace for that. To be able to flee sin and temptation, we need grace for that. And we need daily grace, which is why Paul asks that the saints receive grace and peace from the Father. You see, in this covenant of works, which was made with Adam in the garden, which is, do this and live. If Adam would have done all of the covenant commands, he could have claimed reward on basis of his covenant faithfulness. He said, give me what I deserve based on my faithfulness to the covenant. But he didn't remain faithful to the covenant. And neither have you and I. And so neither of us can claim the privileges of the covenant. But as those who have God's favor in salvation, based on the works and merits of Christ, we can come before God and receive all that He has promised based on the faithfulness of another. Based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Christ did what Adam could not do. He did what you and I could not do. And so based on the faithfulness of Christ, you and I being united to Christ through faith can seek out all of the blessings 
which flow from that relationship which has been authored by Christ. And so, how do we do this? Well, first we do it by prayer. We ought to corporately as well as privately, individually, be asking God for those things which are ours in the covenant. The things that Christ purchased by His blood. And so we can boldly come before God by His Spirit asking for these things. Grace to get through those tough times. Grace to overcome temptation. Grace to deal with those people maybe we don't like to interact with so much. Grace to be the husband God has called us to be. Grace to be the the wife God has called us to be. Grace to be the son, the daughter, the employee, the friend that we have been called to be. And so do you do this, brothers and sisters? Do you go to God daily for that supply of grace we need? Do you go to God daily for that supply of peace we need? Peace of conscience. That you are in right standing with God. Peace between neighbor. Peace between one another. As God is called the the God of peace. Later in chapter 4 we will see. And so God desires that we be at peace with all people. Peace should characterize the saint's life. Hebrews 12.14 Strive for peace with everyone. Romans 12.18 If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably. Can we say that we do this? Can we say that we do this? I'm sure all of us have had a time in our life in which we've had no desire to live peaceably with someone we feel have wronged us. But is that what we are called? No, we are commanded as far as it depends on you, brothers and sisters, to be at peace with all people. That should be our goal in every relationship. And because we have grace, we can seek peace. They go hand in hand. We have been given grace so we can have peace. We can be at peace knowing that we have been reconciled to the Father. We can have peace horizontally, one to one, you and I. And this peace is evidence to us that Christ's kingdom is at hand. For everlasting peace will characterize our life in the age to come. Yet while we live on this earth, we have a foretaste of that peace right now. And that peace ought to abound in the church, shouldn't it? If peace is to abound, it ought to abound in God's spiritual kingdom. We're not like the world. We should not be like the world. The world is at enmity with God. They have no peace. They have no assurance that they're going to heaven or hell. Their whole life is filled with, am I going, am I not? Does God love me? Does He not? Their earthly relationships are broken. If wrong, they are those who try to seek vengeance, not peace. But that is because peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Peace is something given to you and I out of that relationship with Christ. And so we must go to God and ask for peace. What a comfort, brothers and sisters. All the boundless benefits which flow out of that relationship with Christ are ours as covenant members, as covenant people. He is our head. We are His body. We must go to the head for grace and peace alike. These are things that we must grow in until we are perfected. But think about it. When we are perfected, we will be full of grace and peace. As full as our glorified bodies can handle. Yet remember that this is based on Christ's merits, not yours and I, as members of God's gracious covenant. And so as we start to unpack this letter, we see that Paul has written to the saints 
as a servant. And yet he has wrote to the holy ones. This is a letter to covenant members. And so as we conclude, the question is, do you belong to the covenant? Are you a holy one? Are you a saint? Have you been set apart? If you are, then this letter is for you. This letter is as much for you and I as it is for the saints in Philippi. And so as we read this letter going forward, read it as a member of God's covenant. One who God is speaking to through His Word. And so as we read this, we are to behold the perfection of Christ. and Behold what Christ has done for us in this letter. We are to read it and hear it with reverence and awe. And yet as saints, we are to ask, what is it that we are called to do? What is it Paul is calling upon us to do and obey? We are to put our minds and our bodies in action, for we have been set apart for a purpose, for God's holy use. So seek to grow in bearing fruit and go to God for all that we need in order to bear fruit in keeping with those who have been made holy through that blessed union with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your written Word. Your Word which has been passed down to the saints. We thank You for Your minister, Paul. We thank You, Lord, that he has written a letter of encouragement to saints who are pleasing in His sight. Father, we thank You that we are those who You have saw fit to be made servants, to be made slaves of Jesus Christ, to be made holy ones. We only ask, Father, that You would bless us, give us all those covenant blessings we need in keeping with those who are Your covenant people. We ask, Lord, that through this week You would illuminate to our hearts and our minds as we think and go over this passage again. What is it that we can do that live How is it that we live in conformity to those who are holy ones? That we live not like unbelievers, like the hypocrites, but that being brought into God's covenant people by that unmerited favor and grace, that we respond in gratitude to your grace and your mercy and your peace. And so, Father, we pray for that peace as we go about our week. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.